You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Over the course of his remarkable 50-year career, political cartoonist Paul Conrad has drawn and quartered 11 American presidents, from Harry S. Truman to George W. Bush, and fearlessly tackled every major social and political issue the nation has confronted. Conrad won three Pulitzer Prizes, but his favorite distinction is his 1973 inclusion on Richard Nixon's enemy list. With us today is Barbara Molter-Wellen, the director of the film, and its writer, Jeffrey Abelson. You look through Conrad's cartoons. How was that process? Did you literally look through every single one of his cartoons over his long career? I don't think we actually got through all of them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That would have taken years. He has files of copies that that just literally cover his 50 years, and we spent quite a long time just rummaging through those and pulling stuff that we liked. Mm -hmm. And then uh, also, fortunately, he has four books, and with some yeah. of his classics in there, and so we're able to pull from there as well. But like Barbara's saying, it's 50 years worth of times, what, five or six a week? Right, and it's yeah. also, I should say, available to the public at the Huntington Library if you apply for uh, readership. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you'd have to call them and see if you can get in to see it as a reader, but the collection is there at the Huntington, just about everything from his Denver Post days uh, on, on up. What got you initially uh, involved in this project? Well, I had met Paul because I had done a film for uh, Showtime kind of looking at political comedy in America over the 20th century. And it was kind of a survey film. We, we talked to a lot of different people, including Mr. Conrad. We went up to his house and met him, and I was kind of fascinated with him and was at that point introduced to his work because I hadn't grown up in Los Angeles. I grew up in New York, and I was just blown away yeah. and thought, somebody should do a documentary about this wonderful guy. Jeffrey, are you a Angelino? Did you... No, I grew up on the East Coast, but uh-huh. I've been out here for 30 years, and, uh-huh. and, I, and I, I came across Conrad as nearly the, as soon as I got here and was a huge fan from the get-go. Is there one particular point in time in talking to him that you felt that he really came alive with? Was it Nixon or Reagan or uh, Watergate? He, he says Nixon's the one, but yeah. Reagan's <laughs> a close second. Yeah. And you can see it in the film. His his eyes definitely light up when he's talking about those two presidents. But he's still given as good as he gets, um, even today with George W. Bush. He's got a fire in him, and it, it's probably not going to burn out until the day he leaves us. He basically says that uh, as long as there's a Bush or a Reagan or a Nixon in office, uh, he's on the job. <laughs> Just the breadth and depth of his work is remarkable. The fact that he's won three Pulitzers, but he lists as one of his greatest accomplishments as being on Nixon's enemies list. So it's obvious he has an affinity for Richard Milhouse. They really came after him with a vengeance. I mean, it wasn't just that, which is sort of an anecdote now, but he was hounded by the IRS for years hmm. for suspect reasons. And all the dark monkey business that was going on back then, he was definitely subject of a lot of scrutiny. And, and there's history uh, to this, so I'm sorry, Jeff. But no, that's, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a dark chapter in American history, and he lived through it, so he remembers it not he, so fondly. He was also part of, I mean, the L.A. Times was really targeted by, by Nixon, right. as was Otis Chandler, who was uh, uh, 
Conrad's publisher and really a hero and protector for all those years. Nixon was kind of a cre- created by the LA Times before Chandler, Otis Chandler took over, and he felt particularly betrayed by the Times and by Conrad since he had been a California uh, congressman and all of that. So there's a, a lot of bad blood <laughs> that goes back a long time. And, and you mentioned Otis Chandler as a sort of guardian angel within the LA Times. Tell us a little bit about what happened to Conrad as uh, Otis stepped aside at the L.A. Times. Well, Otis had stepped aside, and it was really just a couple of years later uh, that Paul was offered a, a kind of package uh, that he, cu- he says he couldn't refuse. Yeah. Uh, he no longer had uh, somebody who was willing to you know, step up and, and, and protect him. Uh, and, of course, you know, now the, the Times is going through so many changes. Uh, it just seems to be accelerating. There's kind of a publisher a week over there, it seems yeah. like. Yeah. That was really the beginning after. Once Otis left, the uh, new publishers came in, and it was sort of the beginning of the, a shift away from embracing uh, strong original voices and avoiding controversy, which has gone on through the last couple, well, 15 years or so, with the corporate takeover of most major news media in the country to reflect a, a larger problem of that Barbara was just talking about with uh, papers like the L.A. Times and other major news outlets having to fight for their journalistic life against the cost-cutting corporate owners. So Conrad and, and actually all of his fellow staff, editorial cartoonists, were like the canaries in the coal mine of yeah. that problem because there's, that's a, a belt within the film. Staff editorial cartoonists that are an all-time low, they used to be on every major paper, and now there's only a handful. And it's all part of the same dynamic. It's all part of this dynamic that uh, essentially we don't want to offend advertisers, we don't right. want to offend some of the readers in case uh, this, the images are, are too, uh, That's right. too strong. And it does say something about the power of the, the editorial cartoon, and it's something that Conrad was able to do, I think, as effectively as anyone. He was able to condense and consolidate what is essentially an editorial into a single image. Very much so. And right. just to remind people, he's still doing four cartoons a week mm-hmm. for right. the Tribune Media Syndicate. Uh, he's still very much a working cartoonist at the age of 82. He also made a big deal of uh, trying to limit, if not exclude, his captions. A lot of cartoons have fairly lengthy captions, yeah. and Conrad hates that. And so he was either a master of a one-liner, or a lot of his images would have no words at all. And that was mm-hmm. when he was happiest. He has this incredible artistic gift so that he is, unlike some cartoonists who are really funny and politically astute but not necessarily such good artists, he's an incredible draftsman. So he's been able to, you know, he has that other talent that can help him make his points so succinctly. Now, did you get to watch him work? A little. Or does he like to close the door and and boot people out when he's uh, at work? It sounds (laughs) like that's the case. We did, actually. (laughs) He made a couple of cartoons for us, and he let us in a little bit, and then was basically like, okay, that's enough, get out. (laughs) Well, he he has a strong personality that that does come across in in the film. Uh, I can't give you the date when he left the Times. I'm, I'm sure you guys know, but... The, uh, when was that, anyway? In 2000 or 93? 93? Really? Yeah, it was a long time ago. Really? But he then left they the used him you yeah. know, every once in a while. Exactly. You'd see him on the, on the Sunday paper, it, it, perhaps. The fellow that replaced him there at the time as a political cartoonist is Michael Ramirez. That's right. Who uh, actually uh, went to where we're broadcasting from, the University of California, Irvine, and worked on the school paper here. Oh. And, and I've, I felt that it was, it was really an insult that they would go that far extreme to the other side of the political spectrum the uh, the times would did, yeah. did 
Did uh, Mr. Conrad say anything about that? Well, we used to call him the anti-Conrad, but uh-huh. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think that, that, that Mr. Conrad was very pleased about that. Um, he didn't he, really talk about, at least in the film, no. uh, about other cartoonists so much. Artists don't like talking about other artists. Really. It, it's kind of tough, and, and particularly with editorial cartoonists, because so often they're, they're dealing with the same material on the same day. That there's always some overlap and, and all of that, if not of opinion, at least in terms of images and stuff like that. So I think they're very circumspect about what they say about one another. But, you know, even more to the point, because Mr. Ramirez is no longer on the staff at the LA Times. There's no longer a staff cartoonist there, which uh, we think is really a a terrible shame. It's kind of a dwindling profession at this point, at least uh, as a staff job at a newspaper. Of course, there are editorial cartoons all over the internet. And we don't mean to be sounding the death knell for this art form. I, we think that it will, it is, and will find you know new expression in other in other formats. It's a shame, though, that at least in an editorial page in a newspaper, the cartoon uh, or the cartoonist was like the gateway into the editorials. Absolutely, and it was the way a lot of people first got turned on to newspapers at all, mm-hmm. and it helped cultivate the habit of reading, which is at an all-time low, and which is really the foundation of the profit pressures that exist that uh, is causing all this. In other words, if more people read the paper, there wouldn't be uh, a subscription problem and there wouldn't be profit pressures forcing corporate owners to tell newspapers to fire their cartoonists or gut their editorial staff because they'd be making all the dough that they wanted to make. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about before with Conrad. He doesn't look at other cartoonists and criticize their work per se. It's more about he is a very deep thinker, and he reads three or four newspapers a day. And when you look at his uh, cartoons where he uses references to Shakespeare and great books and philosophy, you know, you kind of have to be somewhat well-read to even understand some right. of them. So he's all about encouraging people to read, read, read. He taught his kids that. Or they say it over and over again in the film. Hmm. And and that's the first foundation. That's how he was brought into cartooning. He was told, you know, go, go read for a couple years and then come back, and then we'll talk about drawing something. Oh, yeah. um, and so it's the lack of that kind of deep thought and perspective that that he bemoans, and that is what you're talking about in terms of, of there just being a lack of strong discussion, debate, and right. dissent on uh, where it counts. An editorial cartoon is sort of like a shorthand uh-huh. uh, to understand a lot of issues, and you have to bring a certain amount of your own context and knowledge to it. Uh, of course, he wants to make it as clear and as much as of a punch in the mouth as he can, but you do, but you do need to understand the issues. You knew, you do need to know the you know the the, the players involved, which um, is why it does belong on the editorial yeah. or op-ed yeah. page. You know, it's fine to sit the randomness of the internet, but um, and yeah. for people that want to seek out specific stuff, the internet's great. But to to be tied to a paper and to a, the editorial section, uh, it's a shame that it isn't anymore. So we're speaking with Barbara Malter Wellen and Jeffrey Abelson, and the. Uh, the film is Drawing Fire. It's a story of Paul Conrad. It's about Paul Conrad, but it's also about this increasing corporatization and consolidation of media, the decline of newspapers in general, and really it touches on some broader issues. And 
in the time we have remaining, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Well, go ahead, Mike. Talk well, I guess, I guess, I, I guess, it, 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 I, well, we are in a manner of speaking. We're does talking it about you, it. The, yeah. the amount of, of just lack of debate in, in many of the newspapers. And also, I guess the newspaper is going to disappear pretty soon is the way it looks, and it's all going to go online. It, it appears that way. Do you think that there's a danger in that? Is there something about getting a paper on your doorstep every morning? No, I don't think there's a problem with that at okay. all. Um, it's my, my concern is quality and content of the paper, not, you know, what what medium it's delivered. I, I actually disagree with that a little bit because mm-hmm. I think that there's something about, I mean, I guess newspapers are getting more expensive all the time, but there's something that about, you know, just being able to pick up a, a newspaper for a very small amount of money, mm-hmm. even if you don't have the, the money to have a computer at home. You know, if it goes only Internet, that that's a certain amount of sort of class uh, stratification that I would really hate to see, but I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's what's going to happen. That is what's happening, and there's no stopping it. And you can have the uh, inky fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just that yeah. sense of, you know, people in the old days, you know, newsboys and all that, but that it was, you know, the papers were so much the form of how everybody in this society got yeah. their information, and it's being increasingly sort of made into a very elitist kind of uh, experience. It's, it's, I think it's, kind it's, of like theater and ballet and so many of the other arts, I think it's very unfortunate. Uh-huh. With computers and Internet access almost ubiquitous now, I don't think that's much of a problem anymore. The thing that I think is great about the Internet is that you can sit in your house in Los Angeles and read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the London Papers. The Guardian and the Independent. And the Independent, yes. And shockingly free. Yeah. <laughs> for yeah. the most part. Until they figure out a way to make it not free. <laughs> until <laughs> well, until net forward. neutrality takes us uh, by storm here. Are Conrad's cartoons up on the internet? Does he have a daily posting, or you know, when he does uh, put them out, is there a, a place? There's several for... sites that post most of his uh, current stuff. Okay. Kegel is one that uh-huh. they do a lot of his current stuff. That's Daryl Kegel. Yeah. Site. I'm caught in the uh, newspaper internet dilemma myself. Yeah, I me get too. a paper. On my uh, driveway every morning, I pick it up, and I find myself more increasingly just reading the sports <laughs> and the cartoons and, and going to the Internet for all the editorial and news content that I need because it's so much more complete. I think it's true. Of all One of telling things. example here is, and I, it's unbelievable to me, the L.A. Times online uh, on Sunday, you know, in the, uh, there's, uh, what is it called, Barbara? The, uh, there's this uh, cartoonist who sort of, Curates a little oh, collection uh, of Joel Pet is it P E P T and it's a nice thing they have yeah. this cartoonist and he, he has four or five cartoonists from around the country that he and, he and he does commentary on them. If you go to that story on the online version, there are no cartoons there. Oh. <laughs> they don't put them in. Endlessly asking them. Oh yeah, well it's kind of an oversight. You can't. <laughs> I mean, there's graphics all over the page, yeah. flashing advertisements, <laughs> blinding you and stuff. But they couldn't figure out how to put a black and white line drawing in the article about cartoons. Yeah, <laughs> it's a gift file for crying out loud. You know, it really fascinates me about this whole. Story, Conrad's story and how he came to the L.A. Times is the fact that, you know, Otis Chandler was basically a Republican. Yeah. He didn't always agree with, with Conrad, and there were many occasions where his very conservative family um, really took him to task for protecting him, but he gave him a berth. He allowed him yeah. a bully pulpit. He gave him a way to express his very strong opinions and, and to provoke debate, and he yeah. believed that that was a way to get more readers, not to turn people away, that a newspaper wasn't just, you know, some sort 
sort of, uh, you know, conveyance for, for advertising, but it was also a way to get people thinking about the issues. Whether you agreed with them or not was yes. almost kind of beside the point. Well, it was that you of, thought about it. Because of Conrad's combination of his deep thought capability and his extraordinary artistry that he was able to provoke that response in people and have even veteran conservatives look at his work that is espousing a liberal point of view and totally respect them. It's yeah. not just like the loudmouth opinionating that right. we have today. Yeah. There's so much depth behind his point of view that you have to respect what he's saying. Exactly. And you have to think about it. Exactly. The film, the documentary, it's part of the Independent Lens series uh, on PBS. It'll be November 7th at, I believe... I don't know the time. It'll probably check change. Local check listings. local listings. Yes, check local that. listings. <laughs> the filmmakers joining us today, Barbara Malter, Wellen, and Jeffrey Abelson. Thank you for being on Film School. Thank you so much. Oh, appreciate it. Good luck on, on your uh, future projects. Thank, Thank you. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.com dot org slash film school.